While the liturgical calendar, the church calendar that is, that we've been following, has already been rolling for some time now, and it's been urging us uh, to lean into the waiting season through Advent, um, experience the fullness of Christ in Christmas, uh, and now Epiphany Sunday, which we're on today, where we recognize that Jesus is the Savior, the Son that came, is it's Jesus. While all these things are going on in the church calendar, we cannot ignore the cultural effect that the solar calendar has on us. You know, the calendar that most of you follow, the, the Gregorian calendar, uh, rather than revolving around the Son of Righteousness, um, revolves around the Son that the Son of Righteousness made, right? That's the, the solar calendar. So the, the, the calendar that most of us follow when we're thinking of work and things like that, the calendars that most of us put up on our walls after Christmas, this calendar is creation-centric, not creator-centric. Okay? There's a difference. But regardless of how much stock you've placed in the solar calendar, which most, most of us follow for work and things like that, it's an inescapable fact that the new year presses upon us the want for renewal. Right? We all feel it. Whether or not we are all in on the system of the, the, the solar calendar or not, we can feel that, that newness that urges upon us as we come into January. But none of us in here are naive enough to think that the new year actually changes anything that happened in 2023. Nevertheless, seeing 1-1-24 on a brand new calendar still gives us a glimmer of hope that 2024 will be a fresh start for us. Every year, we somehow convince ourselves that the new year means a new me, right? This will be the year that I finally do X. This year, I'm going to do Y. I'm, I'm going to start over. We're going to get it right this year, okay? Fresh start, right? I'm going to forget my past and move forward. New year, new start, new me. That's usually the way that we start out January. Let's not talk about what February and March starts to look at. That, that's where we're at in January. We feel these things, right? But the biggest problem uh, with this unrealistic hope, and I think that we all can be honest and say it's kind of unrealistic, is that the same person that blew it in 2023 is the same person who's now trying not to blow it in 2024, okay? Same person, right? We are blind and dumb if we think that another loop around that glowing star will renew who we are, okay? 2024, Mason, is the exact same Mason as 2023, just another loop holder, right? That, that's really, if we're being honest with ourselves, the reality of the situation. New year, same me, okay? And here lies the same problem that Isaac Alexander, for those of you who were here uh, with us last week, and speaking about the fault of the old covenant, he, he showed us something. If you paid attention, and if you were here, you'll remember that he very helpfully pointed out the precise language of Hebrews, that reminds us that the covenant itself was not the problem. Okay, as we come to the new covenant, we start thinking about the new covenant versus the old. It's not that the covenant was the problem. The fault was with them, is the way that Hebrews puts it, which means that it's uh, uh, the administrators of the covenant that were the problem. It was a personal problem, not an institutional problem, not a systematic problem. Okay? In other words, the, the fault wasn't on God's side. It was on our side, on humanity's side. Noah was a great man, but let's not forget who it was that lay naked and drunk after he had made wine from the garden that was supposed to be like this new Eden, right? It turns out that the flood washed away most of Noah's friends and even his enemies, but not his internal enemies. Noah was still Noah after the flood. Abraham was a foundation of faith for Israel, no doubt, but he also 
caved on his faith when he came into Hagar, his wife's servant, when they were trying to have the promised child that didn't work out when he pursued it unfaithfully. Moses was meek, but also weak. His stammering tongue and poor example of leadership was not enough of a motivator to lead Israel into the promised land or obey the commandments of God. As soon as he comes down the mountain, they're already following his brother who holds up his arms later and they're worshiping a calf. So, right, there, there's problems here. David, David was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a womanizer and a blood-stained hand man. Okay? He, he, he is killing people to get with their wives. Okay, Not the greatest example, right? And yet, these were the covenant administrators. They were the mediators of God's covenant with man that God gave to us. Do you see the common theme between them and us? Right? The thing that keeps the covenant from substantial renewal is the same thing that keeps your new year from substantial renewal, and that is sin. Right? Sin. Sin's the problem. Okay? Sin was the problem that kept the covenant of old from ever gaining much traction. Yes, there always remained a faithful remnant of people that kind of got it, right? These were the covenant administrators. But on the whole, Israel camped out in exile because of the unfaithful majority. And even the remnant, the, the, the small minority that got it, they were still unfaithful at times too. And this is why they were in exile. And this is where we pick up in our text this morning. Israel is lamenting their exile for their unfaithfulness. And the prophet Jeremiah gives them, uh, gives them a word from the Lord. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31, we're going to look at verses 15 through 37. Jeremiah 15, or sorry, Jeremiah 31, 15 through 37. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning, church. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourselves guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Once more, they shall use the words of the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together. And the farmers and those who wander from their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul. And every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel with the house of Judah. 
with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that, uh, that as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for they, or for all that they have done, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord for his people. Pray. Father, we come to you this morning invoking your presence, asking that we would have a clear picture of what this new covenant means for us. Especially as we move into this new year, Lord, help us to think about uh, the implications of the new covenant for us here at Village Church in 2024. I pray that the same words uh, that were inspired by the Holy Spirit and placed upon the scripture here in our, in our, that we hold in our hands, I pray that these same words would be by your spirit written upon our hearts today. I pray that you would write upon us on the inside, help us to internalize what you're saying to us so that we might walk away today new, that we might walk away today renewed, changed, conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. Speak to us today through your word, Lord. We thank you that you promised to do just that. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So we come to the new covenant in the peculiar thing about this new covenant that you might have noticed as we were reading through that scripture is that no particular person is yet named. Did you notice that? In the prior covenants, God comes to specific individuals, to, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, and so on. He comes to individuals and covenants with them as representatives of Israel. Here, the covenant is said to be with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It says this in verse 31 and verse 33. So it seems to have a corporate nature to it. A nature to it. Another peculiar aspect of this covenant is that there is a contrast with the old administrators. Okay? He says in verse 32 that this covenant is not like the covenant that he made with their fathers. They broke the covenant, Jeremiah says. So he's stressing something. He's stressing that it's different. It's not like before. This is different than the usual pattern of covenant renewal because in prior administrations, the covenant was more of a succession. It's kind of building on what was before, not so much a break from the former administrators. So here's the big question, right? 
if the problem with the old covenant was that it was with sinners and sinners break the covenant, then how is this new covenant any better than the old if it's with the same people, the house of Israel, right? The house of Judah is what it says. The corporate majority of the house of Israel were even more sinful than the individual minority that the old covenants were made with. So to distill the question down a bit, what is the newness of the new covenant? Okay, what is the newness of the new covenant? After all, I've been heavily emphasizing that these old covenants are all part of the one overarching covenant of grace. Right? And I stand by that still. This is still part of the one covenant of grace. I've been stressing continuity more than discontinuity. So much so that after the sermons uh, I preach, some of you might be wondering, is there any newness to the new covenant. If it's all one, what's what's any different about this? What makes the covenant new? Right? What is the newness of the new covenant? So let's talk about discontinuity for just a second. As far as Jeremiah 31 is concerned, I believe that we have the answer given for us in verse 21 and 22 as to what the newness of the new covenant is. If you would turn back in your Bibles, Jeremiah 31 and verse 21 and verse 22. I'm going to skip the first half of 21 and look at the, the rest down to 22. It says, Return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing. Underline that word. New thing on earth. A woman encircles a man. A new thing on earth. A woman encircles a man. What is it that is new about a woman encircling a man? You think about that. Now, I'll be honest, most commentators, most modern commentators, that is, believe that this is a proverbial way of saying that the weak will overcome the strong. That what they're saying is that the, faith, the faithless daughter, Israel, is represented by the woman, and uh, the woman will encircle and overcome the man that represents the strong enemies. Now, there might be some truth to this, but I don't believe that it puts the emphasis in the right place when we read it that way. I don't. I don't believe that Jeremiah is pumping up Israel's spirits to tell them that they're going to overcome their enemies, even though they're like weak women. I just don't think that that's what the, it's saying. Remember, Jeremiah is not shy to remind Israel that they have blown it. Okay? They are the problem, along with their fathers, it says in verse 32. So he's not afraid to say that they, they are the problem here. Okay? The faithless daughter, in verse 22, is the one who wavers. Okay? She's faithless. She's wavering. It's the man she encircles that I believe that we should pay special attention to. Okay, that's where I think that we need to put the focus. Not so much on faithless Israel, but the man that this woman encircles. It's an early church view, and a break with many respectable commentators that I admire, but I think that this phrase, a woman encircles a man, is new because it's pointing to something that had never happened before, and that is a virginal pregnancy. A virginal pregnancy. This is intimated in verse 21, calling Israel a virgin, right? So there it is. It's, it's obviously saying in some sense, Israel is a virgin, okay? So a sinful, though virginal, woman, sorry, Rome, encircles a sinless man, okay? The Virgin Mary encircles Jesus the Savior in her womb. This is the new thing that God is going to do in his covenant uh, that he's never done before. This is the new thing in Israel that they can get excited about and expect something amazing to happen to change. This is the break with the old. Okay? This also begins to answer for us the problem, sin. Okay? It answers the problem of sin. Because if the covenant is actually with Jesus Christ himself, 
as the representative head of the house of Israel, now we can make sense of how this is different, right? How, how this covenant is new. It's made with a sinless administrator, unlike the former covenants that were made with sinful administrators. Noah and Abraham and all the covenant administrators, they were sinful men. But if that isn't enough that Jesus is hinted at here, it's not clearly seen as, as we would like, but, uh, but I believe that we can further substantiate this truth if we go back at the verse that we started with in verse 15. Okay, Let's look at verse 15 and see if maybe we can get closer to, to seeing more clearly that this is talking about Jesus. Verse 15 says this, Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. What does that mean? Well, let me give you a little bit of context and background because we're not Jews, uh, most of us in the room at least, I think. Um, so we don't know what Ramah necessarily means. What does it mean by Israel? Well, Ramah is about five miles north of Jerusalem where Israel walked bound in chains in exile to the Babylonians. And this is hinted at in verse 21 when it says, set up road markers for yourself. Uh, make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Right? So Ramah was this, this five-mile trail north of Jerusalem where they went um, in exile to the Babylonians. So Ramah to Israel is symbolic of the painful reality of exile from their homeland, and more importantly, from exile from God, right, in the presence of God. Ramah to Israel is like the gulag to Russia, right? It is, it is the pain, uh, the, the, tra the trail that represents pain and suffering that would never be forgotten, right? When, when Russia thinks of gulag, that's not something that they can just step away with and ignore. Anytime anyone goes around that area, they know what happened there, okay? And this is something of what is being hinted at here uh, to, to the Israelites. Jeremiah is saying, remember that way. Think about Rama, Rama, weeping, lamentation. Rachel. Okay, what about Rachel? Rachel is long dead by now in Jeremiah's day, but Rachel serves as the archetypal mother of Israel because from her children come the 12 tribes of Israel. So remember that Rachel marries uh, Jacob who becomes Israel. So Rachel weeps uh, over the exile of her children. This is why he says that Rachel is weeping. Yes, she's already passed on by now, but the, the point is, is that they're in exile. They're suffering. They're going through hardship. So Verse 15 uh, stresses for us slavery and exile, the pain of unfortunate consequences of sin. But I wanted to highlight this verse because it may jog your memory, as many of you have probably been reading the Christmas story in the past few weeks. Do you remember this? This verse is quoted in Matthew 2.18 in the New Testament where Mary and Joseph are in exile from Bethlehem as Herod, the king of Judah, is seeking to kill the infant Jesus. Right, this ties straight into our Christmas story that we just walked out of. Matthew 2, 16-18 says this, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. A couple interesting things to notice here. Herod, king of Judea at this time, is a Roman Jew. 
He is the one who built the second temple in Jesus' day. You may have heard Jesus' period in the time he lived uh, called the second temple uh, Judaism. This is the, the, the region where he lived. This is where the temple was. He built the second temple, and that whole era is, and many times uh, biblical scholars call this second temple Judaism. Okay, so, so he was the one that built this second temple. Now, Herod, the Roman Jewish king, fulfills the Babylonian role as exiler and enslaver. He's the one that enslaved them. The, the Roman-Babylonian connection, it becomes quite important when you're reading Revelation, but I don't want to go there today. But for our purposes now, we should most importantly realize that Jesus fulfills a role too. Okay, So Herod fulfills a role uh, of Babylon. Jesus fulfills the role of Israel here. Okay, This is right after that, that passage that we've talked about quite a few times before, that out of Egypt I have called my son. Right? Jesus fulfills again this role of Israel for us. But think about this. As you're thinking about verse 15, Rachel, weeping, lamentation, all the children under two years old have been murdered by a Jewish king trying to kill the Messiah. Weeping and lamentation over the children of Israel because they are no more, is what it says. But Jeremiah says in verse 16 to keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. And in verse 17, he says, there's hope for your future and your children shall come back to their own country. Ask yourself, church, what children? If Herod killed all of them under the age of two, what children are we to think will come back to their own country? There's only one left that could fulfill this hope. That's Jesus. Jesus is the only one left. Jesus is the new Israel who has just escaped the Babylonian captivity. The boy child who just one verse earlier is called Israel and shown to fulfill the Exodus narrative. He fulfills the new thing that Jeremiah spoke of. Okay? The sinlessness of Jesus is this discontinuity that we see between the old and the new. That's the difference in the old covenant and the new testament, essentially, that Jesus isn't a sinner like we are. Whereas the former administrators were imperfect and ineffectual types and shadows, the new administrator, Jesus, is not like the fathers. The substance has come. Jesus is here, and he's the real thing, and he's effectual. This is stressed in verse 22, or sorry, verse 32, that in this new covenant it will be made with one that is not a covenant breaker. He's a covenant keeper, one who can uphold both sides of the covenant, like we've talked about before. For God upholds his side, and somehow the other side is upheld too. Man's side, right? So let's talk about continuity of, of the covenant. We talked about discontinuity. What about the continuity of the covenant? Well, it might appear that the newness of the new covenant has come to abolish the old, right? But Jesus was very clear that he had not come to abolish the law and the prophet, but to fulfill it, right? Jesus came to fulfill the law and prophets. And after all, did we not just read that Jesus fulfilled this text that Jeremiah spoke of? which is certainly one of the prophets, right? He fulfills the law and the prophets. We can see it unfold already in Matthew. So what then do we do with the law? Okay, We can see that Jesus fulfills the prophets a couple times in Matthew, but what about the law? Does Jesus abolish it? By no means, no. The, the law is upheld. Jeremiah tells us exactly what happens to the law in verse 33 in Jeremiah 31. Look what it says. What happens to the law? I will put my law within them. Think about it. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Ask yourself, church, if Jesus fulfills the law, what exactly is it that's going to be placed upon your heart and written on your heart? It's Christ Jesus himself. 
Jesus is the one that's being written on us, on the inside. You, you see these scriptures about Christ dwelling in us richly, right? This is where we get the idea of asking Jesus into your heart. You don't see it as clear and crisp as maybe we want to, but that's the idea here, that Jesus is within us. There's, there's a sense in which Christ is written in us. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul speaks of it this way. He says, and you show that you, he's speaking to the church in Corinth, and you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone. Think about the imagery there. Not on tablets of stone. Think about Moses coming down with the two tablets of stone. It's written not with tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, it says. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in and of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life, Paul says. So Paul can speak of our sufficiency because he's saying that our renewed heart is the new covenant reason that we do not need to teach each other saying, know the Lord. Right? We don't point people to the law. We show them Christ in you, the hope of glory. We show them our hearts, which is Christ Jesus. We are his hands and his feet, and we take Christ to them by living out the law through what Christ has done inside of us. And forget not why we're even talking about the law. Okay? Why are we talking about the law? Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant, not the destroyer of it. The destroyer of it. That's what we're trying to get to. We're trying to get back to this continuity. of how, how does Jesus come back to the same covenant? We know that he's different in the fact that he is sinless, but how is he connecting it all together? Well, Jesus fulfills what Moses could not do. Okay, so And not only this, uh, but all the covenants of old. It's not just Moses, it's, it's Noah, it's Abraham, it's David as well. Why else does he speak to uh, the fixed order of creation but to echo his promise to Noah? Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. He says, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me. Does this not sound wonderfully sim similar to Genesis 8.22 when God told Noah, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. We can bank on that, he says. That's what he told Noah. Here he is saying that this new covenant is of the same eternal nature as the old. Indeed, it is one covenant of grace forever with the one God who does not change that is committed to his creation. He doesn't change. He's keeping things the way, and you can uh, the same way, and you can bank on it. it. As much as you can bank on the sun rising in the morning, you can bank on God, and even more so, because he's the one who made that sun, right? By the pen of Jeremiah, he tells us, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. Here is shifting the covenant breaker to contemplate the former promises to Abraham. Remember, in Genesis 15, when God is talking to Abram, he told Abram, he took him outside and he said, look up at the stars, look up at heaven. He says, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The, the, the Lord is urging Israel, and I would argue the Lord is urging you this morning, to look up into these same heavens and see if you can number the stars. 
See, see, just try to comprehend the eternality, the, the vastness of God's forever nature of his covenant faithfulness. If you can measure this expanding and vast universe that never stops growing, then God will let you be repaid for your sins. Then God will let you pay for your sins that you committed. But if in your exhaustion you throw yourself upon the Lord at this impossible task, if you surrender in faith, realizing that you can't wrap your mind around God, he promises to forgive your iniquities in Christ Jesus. That's the promise of the new covenant. And speaking of iniquity and, and sins, let us not forget God's covenant promise to David. He speaks of David's coming offspring that would build his house, but he also says of, of his offspring, when the Lord, or sorry, when he commits iniquity, when he commits iniquity, it doesn't say if, so in within the Davidic covenant, there's this promise, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now think about the imagery there of those stripes of iniquity, the rod of men. Is Christ not the man whom Isaiah prophesied? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the discipline that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For that he is punished for our iniquity, and we receive his righteousness. He who knew no sin. This is probably my favorite scripture, if you haven't noticed. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is a beautiful, beautiful promise. If we, we, we exchange our iniquity, and he steps in that and says, I will take the punishment. I will take the discipline for your iniquity. I will take your place, sinner, so that you can be at peace with God. That is the promise of the new covenant given to us. Now, village, what you can see is that Jesus' sinlessness is the discontinuity of the covenant. He, he is not a sinner. But our iniquity... Our sinfulness placed upon his humanity is the continuity that ties it all together as one eternal covenant sealed by his blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Okay? There had to be an answer to the sin problem, and only a man could do this, which Jesus was. Right? The new covenant doesn't erase the past. It redefines how the debts are settled. It maintains the integrity of God's justice towards sin and the sacrificial system while offering a path to reconciliation with mankind by the seed of the woman. That's what Jesus is for us. Jesus is the new man encircled by the woman who makes a way for the new humanity to be born in him, reborn in him. In 2024, village, don't make the mistake uh, that putting on the new man is putting on your new self, just trying to be the new you, right? You cannot bear those iniquities of last year, and you will be unpleasantly surprised at how much continuity you have with your former self. Lots of continuity. You must put on Christ, who is the new man, the new self, the end of the law to every man who believes. He is the discontinuity between your old self and your new self in Christ Jesus, which really is a new identity altogether. It's not the old you. It is a new you, really, in Christ Jesus. That is the only traction that you will find in your walk with God this year. When you put on Christ and you walk by faith in Christ, the Son of God, and who he truly is. 
you, faithless daughter of Israel, must encircle the new man, Christ. You must be pregnant, not with grandiose ideas of uh, New Year's resolutions and of the new self and who you might be, but you must be pregnant with Christ himself. He must dwell richly in your hearts. You must have an internalization of the new law, the fulfilled law, which is Christ himself. And perhaps the most practical way that you can Christ, get Christ in you is by partaking of him in the Lord's Supper. Think about that, how we might have Christ in us. Holy Communion isn't just a bare memorial where we think about Christ. Now, he does call us to remember. It does involve our minds, but it involves all of us. Think about that. Our mind discerns uh, whether we are truly a part of the body or not. It examines, right? Um, it, our hearts take hold of grace by faith through coming to his table in obedience. He calls us, and it really takes our, our hearts to, to propel us to come, doesn't it? To say, yes, I want Christ. I will come. But it's not just our mind and our hearts, but also our bodies, like our mouths, our, our tangible humanness, that our bodies literally consume what Christ tells us is his body, is his blood. No, it's not literally physically Christ, but there is a real sense in which we come in faith and we receive the real presence of Christ, where he is with us. When we partake of that, we are internalizing by faith who Christ is and he dwells in us. And we have sweet, holy communion with God himself through the sacrament of the Lord's table. If there ever was a way to have God write his law on our hearts by the Spirit, it is through this covenant meal that we are about to partake of, where Christ calls his followers to come and commune on him, not just with him, but on him. He says, unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood, sounds so weird, but that's what Jesus says. If you, if you don't do this, you have no part with me. But if you do, you have eternal life. That's the strength of what this table does for us, this, this means of grace by which we come to God. The, the, the exile of Rama, the, the weeping of Rachel, ends at this table. Jeremiah exhorts you to keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. This table is a table of hope and joy. Those who believe in Christ, the hope of glory, are welcome today to partake. But the apostle warns us that if we come without discerning the body, that is, without belief, we will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. He won't bear your iniquities. You will if you don't come in faith. This is why it says some have even gotten sick and died. But this is a new covenant meal. Jesus says it's the new covenant I poured out for you. This is how we come to commune with God in this new and tangible way with God himself. But for those who believe, he gives his life for the life of the world and invites you to come. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we prepare now to come and commune with you, we pray that we would be able to wrap our hearts, our minds, and even our, our bodies around what you're calling us to do when we come to your Lord's table. I pray that our strength would be increased through this, that this truly would be a means of grace to where we're able to have an intimacy with you that we wouldn't be able to have um, in any other way. You, you've set this aside as a holy meal. You've commanded us to do it. And Lord, we, we pray that as we come in obedience to you, that we would truly proclaim your death until you come. That this would be a, a revival in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies, all of our being. As we prepare to walk into 2024, I pray that we would start by feasting with you. That this would be the meal that spiritually nourishes us to do the things that we need to have the strength to do in this coming year. 
So commune with us, we pray. Help us to examine our hearts rightly as you tell us to. Help us to come in faith. And as we do, Lord, we pray that you would invigorate us with your presence. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Do we do now come?